0: Hello, everyone. My name is JB Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky, nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. It is Monday, July 17th, 2023. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Today, we begin a new segment on the NBW podcast entitled Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. You know, one of the things I've always enjoyed most about our ministry is the opportunity I have to engage in edifying and thought-provoking dialogue with our listeners and conference attendees. It doesn't take much to pull me into a lengthy discussion about all things theological, biblical, and geopolitical, for that matter. I think it goes back to my days in the classroom in the early days of our ministry when I served in academia as an instructor at the baccalaureate and graduate levels. As Wendy can attest, I spent many a late night on campus long after I had dismissed class, engaging with students and attempting to answer their questions. One of my disappointments as NBW Ministries has grown has been my inability to keep up with all of the emails and voicemails that we receive. I really do read every email and listen to every voicemail, which often contain questions or comments. And sometimes the questions are so intriguing that I stop what I'm doing and type out a quick response. But most of the time, however, I, I flag the question for more focused attention when I have more time. But then, you know, as time goes on and the demands of ministry take precedence, those inquiries get pushed lower and lower on my daily list of priorities as those of you who have emailed me probably have noticed. You know, sometimes it can take me weeks before I circle back and provide a response. Well, recently, uh, we came up with an idea that I think will help both me, those of you who submit questions, and really the entire NBW Listening audience at the same time. Today, we're launching the first in an ongoing series of podcasts dedicated to answering your questions. It is much easier for me to explain things verbally, off the cuff, rather than taking the time to to type out and compose detailed organized and well-structured email responses. Uh, And so if you have a question uh, please feel free to email us. We have posted a banner on the highlight carousel of our homepage where with one click it'll open up your email uh, client and and you can send us an email with your question or questions. And then assuming it's a question that justifies a response and usually they do I will flag it to address in these periodic, uh, perhaps weekly, depending on the volume of questions that we get, uh, dedicated uh, podcast. And so uh, here we go. This is the first installment of Dr. Hickson. Uh, answers your question. And so in no particular order, I've flagged some that have come in over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, which is when I last uh, took the time uh, to answer a bunch of emails. And so uh, this will help me out a lot and hopefully it will benefit you as well. This is a question from Sue who says, uh, you talk about in a sermon not long ago, uh, the Bible and Bible uh, study Bible that you recommend and that you use. Uh, Could you uh, please tell us what that is? Well, I uh, typically preach and teach from the New King James Version, uh, and I've talked about uh, frequently why that is. I just believe in terms of uh, a manuscript uh, basis uh, from which they translate Uh, the Greek into English Uh, it's probably the best and most well attested but also the translation technique I think is the best. It's a formal equivalent sort of word for word type of translation technique. So I really like the New King James. Like many of you, I grew up on the King James. And so, uh, you know, the New King James is very similar. It simply uh, kind of modernizes some of the uh, Elizabethan English and things like that. And, you know, with all respect to my King James friends, I I love the King James. I I frequently will preach from it when I'm at a church that requests it. But I just find the New King James a little easier uh, to read. That's my preference. I could get into much more detail on that, but I encourage you to check out my eight-part video streaming series on uh, how we got our Bible that gets into a little more detail on the modern English translations and why I kind of landed many years ago on the NKJV. As far as a study Bible, uh, that's an easy question for me to answer. Hands down, my favorite is what is now called the NKJV study Bible. Now it was originally called the nelson study bible put out by thomas nelson but the reason i love it is that the entire editorial committee uh that makes up the study notes in that bible uh are there every one of them is a solid traditional dispensationalist who comes at scripture from a literal grammatical historical perspective and uh you know is consistently uh pre-tribulational in their overall approach uh the general editor uh was a man by the name of earl rodmacher who uh, i was very close uh, to in fact he wrote the forward uh to my first book uh, years ago. and uh, I've had the privilege of serving with him in a variety of roles um, and then all of the you know New Testament, Old Testament scholars many of them, the, the vast majority of them are men that I either sat under at Dallas Theological Seminary or have interacted with in other uh, roles, so I, I really trust their notes obviously a study Bible is the study notes are not inspired, they're not infallible these are just um, uh, you know godly teachers who are seeking to interpret the word and connect the dots of scripture, uh, so you always want to study the bible for yourself and not just assume that every note uh, is uh, correct but i really highly recommend what is now called the nkjv study bible with earl rodmacher as the general editor Uh, there are others that are great uh, study bibles out there uh the uh, Ryrie Study Bible, of course, many people uh, have benefited from that. I, I had the privilege of knowing Dr. Ryrie quite well. We've interacted many times before he went to be with the Lord. Uh, uh, in fact, one time he recommended me uh, to a church that I ended up going to, and we've shared the platform at many conferences. When I was in academia, I actually uh, invited him to speak in a couple of occasions, once as our commencement speaker. Uh, so it really meant a good mentor of mine, and his, his is a great study Bible as well. I just really prefer the breadth and the depth of the Nelson, what is now called the New King James uh, study Bible. And it's well laid out as well. It's got great uh, organization, great notes at the beginning of each book of the Bible, uh, great charts, graphs, maps, uh, insets, and things like that. So thanks for that question, uh, Sue. The next question uh, is from uh, uh, Mariska, and uh, she is asking about A lot of videos and speculation that are going around on social media with regards to the rapture in which people are suggesting uh, that uh, we're, you know, going to see the rapture sometime in a window of years between 2023 and 2026. Uh, depending on when you think Jesus died. Um, there's uh, Some people th- have taught that Jesus died in 30 A.D., but the preponderance of evidence, and most scholars agree, as, as I have taught, that he died in 33 A.D. Um, so that was the first question that she asks, is do you lean towards 30 or 33 A.D.? I definitely hold uh, to Jesus beginning uh, his earthly ministry in 30 A.D., and he was uh, crucified in 33 A.D., resurrected in 33 A.D., um he was born by the way the way we now reckon time in what would be the year the winter of 5 or 4 BC. Um I know it seems strange that Christ was born before Christ, but that's just because we kind of calculated wrong when we started uh, the new dating system, but we know that's the case because we have all kinds of extra biblical Uh, historical evidence uh, that uh, you know kind of leads us to that date one the one being that Herod was uh, still alive when Jesus was an infant and we know historically that Herod died in the in April of 4 BC so Jesus had to be born before that Um, so anyway uh, yeah that's my answer to when when uh, Christ died but as far as the dating of the rapture Uh, There has been a lot of speculation for a variety of reasons that, you know, the 2020s will, uh, you know, basically constitute... Uh, the time of the rapture and the beginning of the transition into the uh, beast system and the Antichrist's reign of terror for that seven-year tribulation. I've actually speculated about that a lot based on the Luciferian Timeline, which I address in a chapter of my Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, that's dedicated to that. It's called uh, the Luciferian Timeline and Agenda 2030. Um, So there are a lot of setting of the stage type signs of the times that seem to indicate we're getting closer and closer. But I don't think you can get there... Uh, exegetically, or cite chapter and verse, and I certainly don't think we need to be getting out our calculators and and trying to you know do math to pinpoint the date of the rapture. Uh, that is something that uh, you know God's people have tried to do for for years because we're so eager to see Him face to face. But I just don't think that's wise. The best we can do is say. You know, it sure seems like it's going to be soon. We know what their timetable is, the Luciferians. Uh, doesn't mean that's God's timetable. He could certainly put a stop to it. Um, but uh, I think we're right to uh, have a sense of urgency and recognize that it could be soon. But I just wouldn't pinpoint a date, um, uh, you know, as a lot of people are trying to do uh, for a variety of reasons. So thanks for the question there, uh, Mariska. Mariska. And uh, here's one from an emailer who just simply signed it with an initial M. Uh, Not sure if it's a man uh, or a woman. Uh, And it says, I heard the podcast on Prophecy Watchers. Do you feel that the upcoming digital ID is the mark? I assume they mean mark of the beast. And that it is better to starve to death than to have one. I'm on social security and disability. Well, uh, I certainly understand, and I get this question frequently at conferences and in uh, our Prophecy Night Q&A sessions, uh, what are we to do about the coming digital ID and the uh, digital monetary system and those types of things? First of all, it absolutely is not the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast will not come into existence until after the rapture. Uh, The mark of the beast is a system that is rolled out by the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, uh, according to which they require everyone on earth to take a mark so that they can function and live in society. They will have to have that mark to buy and sell, and it will be a full-spectrum planetary control grid. That said, could it be that the digital ID system that they are working hard to roll out is the precursor to the mark, or is it? You know, could it be the the technology that is used uh, to employ? Uh, the mark of the beast that that the Antichrist and, and false prophet used to employ that? Absolutely. I think more than anything else in history, it fits the bill. You know, there's always been speculation about different technological advancements and how they might, in fact, uh, be the quote-unquote mark or be used for the mark of the beast. Uh, but this actually fits the bill perfectly because they are saying that they're going to roll it out uh, by the way, I apologize for the uh, construction noise in the background here. We're still doing construction here at the MBW uh, ministry offices uh, related uh, to uh, just you know expansion and also particularly right now the uh, water uh, diversion problem that we had from all the flooding. We're just about at the end of it. Uh, we finished up a couple of projects uh, today, in fact, Uh and uh, hopefully it should be finished with it all soon. So if you hear a bunch of hammering or nail guns going on in the background, I apologize, but hopefully that's kept to a minimum. Um, so so the the digital ID system will is intended to accomplish for the Luciferians today in this present age exactly what the beast and the false prophet will try to accomplish after the rapture during the tribulation period. Uh, So in that sense, it could be, um, you know, the precursor to that. Um, So uh, the reason I recommend that people not participate in it is not anything moral or it's certainly not anything related to your salvation. You know, a lot of people think that getting to heaven is determined by whether you take the mark or not. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that during the tribulation, only unbelievers will take the mark and no believer will take the mark. It doesn't it's not a cause and effect thing. We're only there's only one way to be saved from Genesis to Revelation, over 6000 years of human history, Everyone in every age is saved the same way, by grace through faith. You have to trust in God to be saved. And specifically, you have to trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. And so that will certainly be true of the tribulation as well. The description that we read about in Revelation 13 is simply descriptive, not prescriptive. It doesn't say that uh, if you take the mark you will go to hell because you took the mark. It just simply says those who take the mark will end up in hell. And we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture that the only way anyone ends up in hell is by rejecting the free gift of eternal life uh, in Christ. And so that's related to the tribulation period. As it relates to the here and now, as we await the Lord's return at the rapture, uh, I think there are pragmatic reasons that that nobody, as I've counseled before, should take the digital ID or participate in the digital ID system. I think it essentially makes you a sitting duck for all of their control mechanisms. It has nothing to do with your eternal destiny, but it does have to do with your protection and and your, you know, being able to live off the grid and being able to, as we await the Lord's return, uh, kind of protect yourself from all of these evil people that are out there trying to take over control of this world at Satan's behest. So um, don't take it. Uh, Obviously, if you find yourself having no choice, uh, you know, that's between you and the Lord. Um, I know it's going to be harder and harder as we get closer and closer. If the Lord tarries His return uh, for people to withstand the pressure, you know, they're going to try to come at you from every angle, as we've talked about. But that's okay. You know, uh, the, the Bible tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. And Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. So, we're not promised it's going to be a bed of roses. Um, So, be prepared to suffer and make it, you know, be prepared to, to have a harder time functioning in this world if you resist the digital ID. I have said, and I still stand by this, that I think we are still quite a ways off from that time when they're literally putting troops on the street, rounding up people and putting a gun to their head and making them sign up for this digital ID. I think it's going to be more of the carrot than the stick, as we saw with the rollout of the gene-altering bioinjections after the pandemic. So I think uh, you're going to be coerced you're going to be pressured you're going to it's you're going to be inconvenienced they're going to do everything they can to get you to jump on board the digital id bandwagon but resist it uh, and resist it uh come what may so thanks for that question and uh the next question uh relates to a particular organization and you know i always hesitate to just uh, capriciously start throwing names out and criticizing organizations and so forth so i want to always try to be gracious but obviously the bible tells us that we are uh, to mark those that are you know preaching a false gospel and preaching doctrine contrary to what we've learned romans 16 Uh, so i'm not afraid to speak out if you've read my books you know i certainly name names Um, but this is a question here about the uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and uh, particularly about Samaritan's Purse. Uh, Now, I have some reservations, uh, and I know this is probably going to make some people mad, but I have taught, going all the way back to my first book uh, uh, many years ago, and and it was my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, which is a comprehensive uh, treatment of false gospels in the present age, that... The uh, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, particularly later in Billy Graham's life, really departed from the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel. And You know, I I give quotes in the book of of uh, Billy Graham at times espousing an inclusivist view, talking about how Muslims can be saved without ever knowing Jesus, that kind of thing. Um, And and I did a pretty extensive critique of some of the uh, the BGEA tracts that they use, and some of them are excellent. You know, they clearly explain man's sinfulness, Christ's atoning work on the cross, and the only way to appropriate Christ's uh, atoning work is by faith. But often these tracts put out by the Billy Graham Association, Evangelist Association will include uh, other requirements that are not biblical, things like committing your life to Christ or making Him Lord or putting Him on the throne of your heart or these types of things that indicate somehow we are going to have to do our part in order to get Christ to agree to save us, when in reality it's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Uh, we, it is a free gift. Uh, over and over again, Scripture tells us that. Romans 3, 24, we're uh, saved freely by uh, His grace, justified freely by His grace. So Revelation 22, uh, whosoever will let Him come drink freely of the water of life. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to get it, to be worthy of it. It's simply a free gift. And so I do take issue with some of the presentations of the gospel that those two organizations, Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelist Association, um, have uh, employed. I also, uh, without going into any detail, I have some, uh, you know, hesitation about recommending Franklin Graham for some other reasons. So I would just encourage folks uh, to do their research on that. I've never met either of these men. Of course, Billy Graham's with the Lord today. Um, and I know God used him mightily, but that doesn't give us, that doesn't give him a pass when he gets it wrong. And uh, I hope, you know, even though the Lord is using NBW Ministries, if I get something wrong, that there will be people out there bold enough to hold me accountable, particularly as it relates uh, to the gospel. So that's my answer about those two uh, organizations. And here's a question from uh, Shimon, who I've interacted with uh, over the years uh, by email. And this question relates to Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9. This, of course, uh, is uh, something, this passage is something we talked about on uh, Friday when I had Brad Maston on the program the, recently, this past Friday, uh, to talk about a kingdom like no other. But it's talking about when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, of course, in chapter 19 is when Christ comes back uh, at the Battle of Armageddon. Chapter 20, uh, we see uh, Satan uh, sent to prison in the abyss, the bottomless pit, for 1,000 years. That's where we get the concept of a millennium. And then we read, picking it up in verse 7, this is Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is of the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. Very important because the beast and the false prophet were cast into that everlasting fire a thousand years earlier at the second coming of Christ. And they're still there being tormented day and night forever and ever as Revelation 20 verse 10 tells us. So the question is, who are those saints in the beloved uh, city? So that's uh, a pretty easy one uh, to, to really answer. Of essentially, those are talking about God's people around uh, Jerusalem. There's no question that Jerusalem is uh, the holy city, the city God loves. Uh, that's the only city it can be, especially at that context. Christ has been Ruling from that city in the rebuilt temple, uh, as Ezekiel describes, for a thousand years, governing the world. And so when Satan's released from prison for his one final battle, uh, which is referred to here metaphorically as Gog and Magog, remember, Gog and Magog is, is uh, there's a literal. Uh, Gog, leader of uh, the land of Magog, that the Old Testament prophets talked about. And that battle uh, is very specific in terms of all the geographic locations involved in it. But by the time you get all the way to the end of the millennium, Gog and Magog is one of those terms kind of like Babylon or Jezebel or Sodom and Gomorrah that just sort of symbolizes uh, the enemy of God's people. So it's kind of a Another Gog and Magog type battle, but in that final cosmic battle, Satan's going to gather together all unbelievers that have come to be at that by that point in the millennium. Because remember. Uh, the millennium will begin with only believers on the earth, but over time those believers that are in their mortal bodies that survived the tribulation and enter into the kingdom because they're, they're believers, uh, they will procreate. They will have children. Those children will be born dead in their trespasses and sins like all human beings, and uh, they will have to grow up and trust in Christ to be saved. And over a thousand years, which is a pretty long time by the way, there will be quite a contingent of unbelievers on earth, and Satan will Gather them all together for one final battle, which won't be much of a battle at all because, as we just read, fire will come down from God out of heaven and devour them. But it's just talking when it says the camp of the saints and the beloved city, talking about uh, believers uh, in uh, that time. Sometimes the word saints refers uh, it always refers to believers but depending on the context it can refer to christians of the church age it can refer to saints of old in the old testament this case it just refers to those believers on earth at the time of the end of the millennium just prior to the new heavens and the new earth Uh, here are some questions from julie and thank you julie for reaching out to us um she asks uh Uh, Can you recommend a study Bible? Well, we already had that question from another uh, listener. So, again, I recommend the New King James Version Study Bible, the NKJV Study Bible, formerly called the Nelson Study Bible. And then uh, she asks, is there somewhere... Uh, where is there a list somewhere of all the upcoming prophecy conferences? Now, well, certainly at NBW Ministries we have an events page right there on our homepage. If you look at the main menu on the left side of our homepage and click on events, we try to keep that updated with all of our upcoming events. Uh, we uh, took the summer off from uh, traveling and was hoping to dedicate uh, these three months to finishing up my next uh, book. Of course, the Lord had other plans, and we've been distracted with all of these uh, flooding and hailstorm uh, crisis that we experienced. So not sure if I'll still be able to meet the deadline for Spirit of the False Prophet, Hacking and Tracking Humanity, which is my next book. Um, but in any way, in any event, we kick off our uh, travel season again in September. I'll be doing a conference in Fort Collins. Uh, that's with... Um, Bill Salas, Randy Price, and a few others. I'm really excited about that one. In October, I'll be back at Prophecy Watchers again in Norman, Oklahoma, at their big conference, uh, followed by another conference at a large church in East Texas. You can see all the details about these on uh, our website. In December, I'll be at the pre-trib conference speaking again this year. Uh, And so... uh, and by the way, later this week we've got uh, I'm so excited we've got Dr. Tommy Ice, the executive director of the Pre-Trib Research Center, on the podcast. and we are going to talk about uh, debunking that uh, that, you know, enduring myth that people have out there that somehow dispensationalism was invented by Darby under demonic influence and it's it's just so absurd. So the preeminent scholar on dispensational thought of our day, really, I think, uh, Tommy Ice is going to be addressing that with me on uh, Thursday I believe it is let me double check uh, before I tell you wrong uh, no Friday Friday uh, of this week this coming Friday the 21st so you can look forward uh, look forward to that uh, and then the third question here from oh, oh by the way on in case that Julie meant uh, you know a list of prophecy conferences in general um, I don't know that there's a a a website i can point you to where there's a list but i can i can mention a few of them here uh, obviously there's the prophecy watchers conferences they do at least a couple of year uh, i think now they're kind of in the orlando in the spring and norman oklahoma in the fall so check out prophecywatchers.com for that list jan Markel does some great conferences up in minnesota uh, you've got uh, the Mid-America Prophecy Conference in Tulsa every year. I've had the privilege of speaking there now seven times in a row. Uh, really appreciate Philip Goodman and the, the great folks there. Obviously, Tommy Ice's pre trip Research Center does a conference every December in Dallas. I've um, uh, spoken there several times, so those are some of the biggies. I'm sure I'm missing some, uh, but I would uh, check out some of my favorite prophecy uh, speakers, like Dr. Andy Woods, who's a good friend. Uh, he speaks various places. I'm sure he has a calendar on his website, um, and uh, you know so many others uh, that uh, we love to follow. Tom Hughes, uh, uh, you can check out his stuff. You, you know, you know a lot of these folks, uh, but hopefully that gives you some things to go on and then her last question this again from julie is uh i've always felt that women should not be pastors but i didn't have scripture to back it up uh since then i've heard you and andy woods talk and preach about it could you share scripture on this well sure yeah the obvious uh, scripture is in uh first timothy we're to be pastors are to be the husband of one uh wife and so um if a woman can be the husband of one wife, which I realize in this day of gender surrender and the transgender movement, that uh, could conceivably be possible from Satan's point of view, uh, but not from God's. From God's word, God's perspective, the biblical office, and I'm talking about here the specific office in Scripture that is variously referred to by three different Greek words, um, episkopos, which is uh, the often translated bishop, uh, Elder, which is a presbyteros in Greek, is another ter- another term. Or shepherd, which is the Greek word poimen, uh, I believe. And those three terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament uh, to refer to the same office. Uh, and you see this in 1 Peter 5. You see this in Acts, I believe it's 17, maybe 19. I'm going off the cuff here. But there are places where the same term is used to refer to the same, uh, you know, uh, office. And so I believe that office is limited to men. That's not to say that women can't serve in in, in various capacities within the church, uh, but the leadership uh, of the church, the doctrinal oversight, the spiritual leadership is vested with uh, the men that, that meet the qualifications that are mentioned there in Timothy and Titus. And so uh, that's, uh, that's the biggest one. Um, now I take uh, less of a legalistic standpoint than some people do. Uh, we recently uh, took some flack, uh, I think, ridiculously, personally, because uh, we had uh, a, a Bible study, a midweek Bible study, in which we had one of our ladies in the church uh, give a presentation and speak under the headship of our one of our uh, board members who was in charge of it, a, man, a male. Uh, and the very fact that this woman spoke out in a mixed setting uh, caused people to get upset. In fact, we had some folks leave the church over it. Um, I just think that's very short-sighted, and they don't really understand the big picture. Uh, I don't have a problem with a woman missionary standing in the pulpit and sharing a testimony. I don't have a problem with uh, you know God using women as He has throughout Scripture uh, to, uh, to 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 communicate uh, important things to the body. They just can't be the ones that God has vested with the spiritual oversight in the church, and they have to be doing whatever they're doing under. Uh, the headship of the head elder, the head shepherd. So uh, the Bible doesn't speak about Sunday school teachers or children's ministry teachers or worship teachers for that matter. So you know, two thousand years after the New Testament was written, we've we've got a lot of situations where we're trying to take biblical principles and apply them to modern ecclesiology. And again, I think the overarching principle is that the office, the ordained office within the local church is limited to men. That seems clear enough from Scripture. Uh, but beyond that, I think uh, you know we're, we're all working in this uh, together. So hopefully that helps uh, with that question, Julie. And I'm sure for those of you that are pretty harsh uh, uh, complementarians out there, you're going to probably not like that answer because you think we should basically, you know, some of you, th- and I know this from 35 years of ministry and emails and discussions I've had, some of you have this impression that somehow women are Less vital in the church, they should just be quiet, keep their mouth shut, and sit in the corner. I don't believe that at all. I think women are the crown jewel of creation, they're the highest pinnacle of creation. God created Adam, took one look at him, and said, This is not good. And then he completed the creation by creating Eve. And so, God created um, humanity, male and female. We all have a role to play, a purpose to serve. And, uh, you know, I don't have any problem with that as long as we don't overstep the clear guidelines of Scripture about women holding the office of pastor. So that's my my view there. The next question comes from Margaret. And she is asking a question from a recent message that I gave, and this was on Nehemiah chapter 4, um, where I talked about imprecatory prayers and how Nehemiah and uh Uh, You know, others, Jeremiah, and of course, many of the Psalms are examples of God's people asking for God to bring punishment and judgment on uh, evil people that were uh, causing problems for God's people. And she said, you know, basically, how do you reconcile that with the passages in Scripture, such as, uh, you know, Romans uh, 16, let's see if I can find it here, I had it up a moment ago. Uh, Romans uh, 12, uh, 16, I think it is, uh, or 12, 14, excuse me, 14, where Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And he's simply quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, in Matthew five forty four where he says, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So, well, how do we reconcile that? On the one hand, we've got God clearly Uh, God's people and servants praying, asking God to judge their enemies and bring, uh, you know, rain down hellfire and brimstone on them. It's called an imprecatory prayer. Uh, And on the other hand, we've got God's Word and Jesus specifically saying, We should love your enemies. Well, I think the answer comes down to what I talked about in that sermon. That when we ask, when we pray an imprecatory prayer, we're not asking for our own sake, we're not asking God to somehow uh, defend us. We're asking him to defend his honor and his character and his glory. Uh, remember, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So we're not entitled to have our enemies suffer. And from a biblical perspective, we shouldn't want anyone to suffer. You know, we want God, we want them to come to faith in Christ <laughs> and be born again. And, 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 and imagine what would happen if some of the key... Uh, world leaders today who are pawns in the game of the Luciferian conspiracy would hear and believe the gospel. It would be amazing. And so we should always be praying for our enemies to come to faith. But at the same time, when we find ourselves under attack, there's nothing wrong with asking God to intervene and do what God wants to do for His honor and for His sake. Uh, And then, of course, a corollary to this or related Issue here is one of self-defense, as I talked about Sunday. That that's in that particular Sunday message, and that is, you know, when you're facing harm, you know, you're not supposed to just sit there and let someone, uh, you know, kill you. You're supposed to, for the sanctity of life itself, defend your life, and that's why Jesus told the disciples to go out and buy a sword, because they were going to be facing some pretty rough. Uh, times So hopefully that helps Margaret clarify a little bit about, you know, sometimes Scripture, we have to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. And Scripture never contradicts itself. So those two concepts there of imprecatory prayers and loving your enemies are not, uh, you know, mutually exclusive. You can love your enemies and ask God to judge them and uh, punish them at the same time. Uh, here's a question from Jen. Uh, and she was asking about a program that she came across, You know, not a, not a television or radio program, but a, a system called cloning centers where the elites are cloning themselves. Um, I have talked about cloning before. It's been a long time. I haven't really kept up with it, Jen, so I apologize I'm not going to be able to give a definitive answer here, but it certainly doesn't surprise me that they would be doing this because the whole transhumanist agenda is to transcend humanity and be able to create mankind, uh, which is the ultimate pinnacle of the creator. God created mankind, ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing. He spoke the world into existence, and in their quest to be God and to overthrow the one true God, they want to create life. So uh, they've been uh, working on cloning. I can remember, boy, it's probably been Easily fifteen years ago, maybe more. I was speaking at an apologetics conference, and I forget the speaker, but he was a well-known apologist. Um, his name will come to me in a moment. But he did a, a whole lesson on cloning and how they had, how far they had come. He was a medical doctor too, uh, and how far they had come in their quest to clone. So uh, that's about all I can comment on that. I wish I had more info. Uh, on it but uh i can i can assure you they're definitely trying uh to do that uh here is a question from janet which is similar to the one i just answered about prophecy conferences she's asking for other helpful uh podcasts that she might listen to and she says she listens to jan markell and stand up for the truth well those are two of the best uh I, I listen to those myself, uh, and I've had the privilege of being guests on both of those programs. Tom Hughes's program is a great one. Anything Prophecy Watchers puts out is great. Um, you know, there's—I uh, I always hate to start listening because I know I my mind, you know, draws a blank and I I forget obvious uh, obvious ones. Uh, but Andy Woods, Billy Crone—I like a, a ton of his stuff. You know, all of them you know, uh, may, we may not agree with everything they say and may not agree with every area of theology, but in general, they're out there sounding the alarm about the soon coming of our Lord and how things are you know, happening today that is setting the stage for the return of Christ. And so uh, if you go to, uh, for example, Prophecy Watchers and you look at the list of speakers at their upcoming October conference where I'll be speaking, all of those guys are good ones to just kind of, see what they have to say. Now, you have to show some discernment. You have to be able to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Again, uh, they all are united in their belief in a pre-tribulational return of Christ, but You know, they may have different interpretations of different passages of Scripture, and that's why we need to be good Bereans and study it uh, for ourselves. As far as non-prophecy podcasts, there's some podcasts out there that I think are very informative, that, again, not endorsing everything they say, not speaking to whether they even know the Lord, although I happen to think uh, these two guys that I'm going to mention probably are Christians uh, from their own testimony that I've heard anyway. Uh, But I would recommend David Knight. And uh, Mike Adams. Uh, Mike Adams, I think, sometimes can be a bit of uh, a—I don't know what the right word is. Perhaps propagandist, or perhaps um, that's that's not the right word. Sometimes I think he can simply uh, further some of the mainstream thoughts that are out there but i think his heart's in the right spot he's brilliant man certainly understands nutrition understands the world as it exists and i uh, try to listen to him often and have picked up a lot uh, from him and his guests Uh, he's with bright he's the one that launched uh, brighteon.com uh david knight is uh I love, I love that guy. He just, he's not afraid to pull, you know, he doesn't pull punches. He's not afraid to call it like it is. So there's some uh, food for thought for you there on that question, Janet. Here's a question just talking about how his pastor, where he is, uh, sometimes preaches that you have to uh, confess Christ to be saved and sometimes kind of adds things uh Somewhat carelessly to his presentation of the gospel, even though, in general, according to John here in this email, his pastor is pretty solid on preaching that it's not by works. Uh, So, yeah, I I flagged this one to address just because it gives us an opportunity to to talk about one of the things that I talk about in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, which is the puzzling gospel. Uh, I think there are a lot of people out there who are not raging Calvinists, they're not works-based salvationists, they're not out there beating the drum of, you got to save yourself by good works, they, deep down, they certainly understand that salvation is by grace through faith, but they've never really thought through some of the terminology that they're using, and maybe out of habit and years of saying things the same way, they'll, you know, they'll find themselves saying things like, invite Jesus into your heart, or ask Jesus into your heart. Uh, By the way, did you know the Bible never, not one time, says that we're to ask Jesus to save us? Uh, He's already offered. You don't have to ask someone to do something that they've already done. He's already paid the price and universally offers to anyone who will come salvation. So the, the, the offer's already been made. The only question is, are you going to accept it? And when someone offers you a gift, you don't have to say, will you give me the gift? They've already offered it. And it creates this sort of really bizarre tautology, as I talk about in the book, if you think that the first step to getting saved is to ask Jesus to save you. No, no, you just simply receive the gift. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone uh, and John 1 12 is a key passage that sort of equates faith with receiving eternal life it says to as many as received him to them he gave the power to become the child of God so uh, so anyway a lot of times people will use certain phrases like make him lord of your life those types of things and uh, or commit your life to him or give your life to the Lord that's a big one uh, you know again the Bible never says you have to give your life to Jesus to be saved not once There's only one giver in the salvation equation, and that's God. God's the giver, we're the receiver. John 3, 16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So uh, salvation is one directional. God's the giver, we're the receiver. And as my mentor Charles Ryrie used to say, when we try to get saved by giving something to the Lord, uh, we're turning the gospel 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Uh, We don't need to bring anything to the altar. We have nothing to give. We have, you know, we're completely sold under sin. We have nothing meritorious to give God. So we want to come empty-handed. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. And if you've done that, then you're saved. It's not something you have to do again and again. It's a one-time moment in time when faith meets the gospel. And in that instant, you're born again. You become part of the family of God, and you're eternally secure. Uh, So I would say... This email sounds like this pastor sometimes is maybe using sloppy language, but it doesn't sound like to me he is uh, sort of, uh, you know, an enemy of of grace. Um, uh, So my best guess would be maybe just be patient with him and maybe graciously and humbly at times, if the Lord gives you an opportunity, try to have a dialogue with him and kind of ask him to clarify what he means by that. Uh, Just a couple more here. Uh, We got one from... Uh, Beth, and uh, she is kind of echoing some of the same things we talked about earlier from that uh, listener about the digital ID. What are we supposed to do when all currency goes digital? Um, again, I would say we need to have a measured response to this. You know, um, I, I think the bigger concern here is that uh, with a with any kind of economic and financial collapse, if all of your uh, portfolio is tied up in uh, some type of online uh, digital uh, asset, like the stock market, uh, bonds, a savings account, things that you know you go online to check your balance. Uh, to me, that's a, a separate issue altogether from the digital IDs and the CBDCs, the, the central bank digital currencies that they're trying to roll out. That's just at risk in general. We could see an economic collapse. We could see an EMP. We could see an electrical you know, hacking, uh, something like that, where people come in and steal it. So if you, as I've said many times, if you can't touch it, you don't own it. So I would be more concerned with making sure you have access to your resources uh, than I would borrowing trouble. For that day which is going to come no question about it when more and more of our normal transactional business is relocated to some type of digital ID um, and that's not just for monetary transaction it's going to be for travel for uh, paying your taxes which of course is monetary transaction but you know, everything that we do is going to be tracked through that digital ID which is why I think we should resist it um, so I just I wouldn't Obviously, worry is not of the Lord. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that we should not worry. God's in charge. God's in control. Do the practical things that you can uh, to hedge yourself against that day. Be prepared. You know, Check out our preparedness guide at notbyworks.org. Just click on the resources menu on the left side of the homepage, and then you can click on uh, the Not By Works preparedness guide, and it will... Uh, link you to a pdf that you can download it's a 12 page guide uh so i just wouldn't be too concerned i can sense in the tone of this email that they are really concerned um and i get it i think it is coming but we're, we're not there yet so um just uh know that god's never seen the righteous forsaken where's children begging bread as david said and i think it's psalm 37 and so uh you know, do the practical things that you can, but don't, don't worry. You know, don't let the digital ID keep you up at night. Just be prepared. Uh, here's a question from Jeff and let's see what Jeff is asking about. Um, he says, uh, Oh, I, this was a, this was an interesting question. And I flagged this one because he's asking a question about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 verses 14 to 30, and I think I referenced this at uh, a prophecy night last week, if I remember right, because um, it had just come in and the question had, and it was just in my mind. I was thinking about it, um, but he's he he's trying to he's conflating two different parables: the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. I was talking about the parable of minas in Luke 19, which is a parable that's relevant to the church age and he's talking about uh, that he, the king is going to go away for a long time. While he's gone, we need to be business, be, be about the father's business and he gives each of the servants Amina, uh, the ten servants and then he comes back after a long time, having received the kingdom, to inaugurate it and when he does, he uh, is you know asking each of these servants to give an account for what they've done. In that parable, Luke 19, I think it's 11 to 27 or 11 to 26 in that range Uh, all of the servants are believers and they all get into the kingdom it's just the one who squandered his mina, went and buried it and did nothing with it he doesn't get any reward in the kingdom he doesn't he's not entrusted with any bigger stewardship Um, remember that parable jesus said if you're faithful in a little you'll be made faithful over much and so those who took their mina. And invested it, you know, meaning their life of service, and they did things for the Lord while we await His return. They're going to be rewarded with more authority and positions of authority in the kingdom. So that's the parable of the minas. The parable of the talents is uh, completely different. That's related to Israel and the second coming of Christ. Uh, and uh, in the parable of talents, you've got three servants. Uh, and that's it. By the way, in the parable of Aminah, as I should mention going back to Luke 19, there are two different groups. You've got the servants, and then you've got the citizens. The citizens in that parable represent unbelieving Israel, and they will not get into the kingdom. But the servants all do get into the kingdom. He does not say that the servant uh, does not uh, get into the kingdom. In fact, just to uh, you know, quote the passage directly, When Christ, in Luke 19, when he comes back, uh, he says to the one who did nothing with his mina, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given and from he who does not have, even what he has will be taken away with it from him. But then he says in verse 27, the very next verse, but bring here those enemies of mine, not the servants, but the enemies who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. So that's who gets kept out of the kingdom is the unbelieving Jewish uh, people in Jesus' day, not that servant. The servant simply uh, is not, you know, given any reward when he gets into the kingdom. Now back to Matthew 25, in the peril of talents, it's all about Israel and clearly the one who did nothing with the talent. Uh, see, in, in, in the peril of the talents, they're not all given the same thing. One has 10, one has five, one has one. Uh, and the one person who had one talent did nothing with it. And listen to what Jesus says uh, to him, cast this unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's the servant in that case that did nothing that gets does not go to heaven. What's Jesus talking about in the parable of the talents? He's talking about Israel. The whole context of the, of the uh, Olivet Discourse is trying to get Jesus to help future Israel when in the in tribulation time, keep from being deceived. He repeatedly says, be not deceived. And in this last opportunity during that tribulation time, receive the king. And uh, they've had many opportunities throughout uh, their storied history of God's people, Israel, to receive the king. They rejected him at his first advent. This time, if they reject him one final time, they will not get into the kingdom. They'll be left out in the dark. So I encourage you to check out our uh, series. It's an eight-part series on the Olivet Discourse. It's a streaming video series. I also have a chapter on the Olivet Discourse in my book, What Lies Ahead. that will go into these questions in much more detail. But uh, to Jeff, I would say uh, your question about the parable of the talents when you questioned, you know, why I said that the last servant still gets into the kingdom. Uh, I think you were confusing what I was saying about the parable of minas there. Uh, we've got a question here from, uh, let's see, I can't see the name. Uh, but uh, anyway, he was referencing uh, something that I said in my theological roundtable with the group from North, uh, from Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um uh, and uh, suggesting a different interpretation of uh, the fact that Jesus, they, many people claim, went to, they say, went to the grave and preached to the captives there. So let me just mention this again. Uh, I did mention it uh, on our podcast recently when the Theological Roundtable, but in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, and let me call that passage up, verse 18, uh, we see that, uh it says christ also suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit and here's the key passage verse 19 uh, verse 20 uh 1 peter 3 actually verse 19 by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison well who are the spirits in prison Uh, As I mentioned, when I answered this question for the ladies in North Dakota, spirit almost always refers to angels, the only exception being Hebrews 12, 23. And the context here, as he goes on to talk about Noah, uh, is the spirits that I believe refers to the fallen angels, the sons of God who left their proper domain, cohabited with women, and were locked up in prison in Tartarus. And so I believe Jesus went there and preached to them the bad news that their judgment had finally come. And uh, that's how I take that passage. Uh, Ephesians 4 is a passage that often people try to relate uh, there, but I don't think it has any connection. You know, a lot of times our Uh, Faulty interpretations come from bad cross-referencing. And uh, the person who asked the question and and sent me a a pretty interesting uh, 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 document, uh, paper that they had written on their view. And it was interesting. I just don't agree with it. Uh, They were trying to correlate all these passages. But in Ephesians 9 we read, he this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And so a lot of people equate that to this passage where we just read where Jesus went and preached to the spirits. And they claim that uh, that's when Jesus went and spoke to certain people and carried people from, you know, different parts of the afterlife into their ultimate dwelling place. I just don't, you know, get down to that level of detail in, you know, seeing different dwelling places of the redeemed currently. I think we're either in the presence of the Lord, we're not, or we're not. Scripture does refer to it by different names, you know, paradise, heaven, uh, Abraham's bosom, uh, sometimes just the grave. Uh, but uh, my view is that. In Ephesians four, the ascended. What does that mean? Unless he first descended, I just take that as that he his incarnation. That he could not have ascended to the right hand of the throne of God unless he had first left the confines of eternity, come to earth, put on human flesh, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died a cruel death, and rose again from the grave, defeating death, hell, and the grave. So that's my view uh, on those two passages. I don't take the view that Christ went to the grave and let a bunch of believing souls free so that they could go up to heaven, like some people uh, teach. I just don't agree with that view. Uh, Here's a question someone is asking about Chuck Missler. Uh, Good question. You know, I worked with Chuck briefly toward the end of his life. We shared the platform together at a conference, and uh, I think he has a lot of great stuff out there. He's certainly a a dispensational uh, thinker. I think toward the end of his life, he and his wife both uh, kind of drifted a, a bit far for <clears throat> from the reservation, you might say. Uh, they got into teaching uh, the notion that believers that uh, don't live a godly life during the church age would be banished from the kingdom and be weeping and gnashing their teeth during the whole thousand years. But don't worry. After you'd been perpetually spanked for a thousand years, you'd get to come back into heaven after the millennium. And I just I think that comes from some 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 misunderstanding of the passages in Matthew eight, Matthew twenty two, Matthew twenty five that we just read about the outer darkness and and kind of confusing the distinction between Israel and the church. But uh, you know, that said, I, I really had a great respect for for Chuck. I think he really opened a lot of people's eyes. Uh, as with any Bible teacher, you need to run it through the grid of Scripture. Uh, and he was not perfect, nor am I. Um, but I think toward the end of his life, especially when he started teaching punitive damages at the judgment seat where Christians not only are rewarded, but they can be punished. Uh, I just disagree with that. I uh, And strongly, by the way. We have a book that we recommend called Should Christians Fear Outer Darkness uh, that uh, I endorsed and uh, several of my colleagues uh, contributed to. Uh, that I recommend. That's kind of the definitive refutation of that view. Um, we also have a chart in our chart book. Uh, I think it's in the chart book. I hope it's in the chart book. <laughs> uh, we have so, we have a, a book where we kind of collated the top 100 to 150 charts that I've used through the years, and we have not updated it in a while. So I can't remember if this one made it in there. But uh, where I describe how believers will never face punishment of any kind. We'll face God's discipline. But we never face punishment. Punishment is always reserved for children of wrath. Uh, So uh, you can check that out uh, as well. And then last one uh, for this inaugural edition of Dr. Hickson answers your questions. This is a question that I come up with a lot through the years, and perhaps you've thought about this or been asked this yourself, maybe. Uh, And that is, why do Christians not celebrate the feasts and festivals? This person named uh, Cecile mentions that uh, she has a friend who thinks we're missing the boat because we we neglect the feasts and festivals, and why shouldn't we do that? Uh, Well, uh she kind of answers her own question here which is that in the present church age it's very clear in scripture that uh christ is the once for all sacrifice we're no longer under the law and the festivals and feasts of judaism israel has been temporarily not permanently but temporarily set aside and today we can boldly approach the throne room we don't have to go through human mediaries and priests uh the book of Hebrews talks about how the feasts and festivals were a shadow of the substance which is to come. I recently taught through the book of Hebrews. You can still find that series uh, under the videos tab of our website. All of my weekly messages are free. Podcasts are free. All of our videos are free. We do have a number of series that I've done through the years at conferences and other places that we sell streaming video of. But my Hebrew series and the Sunday sermon series are always available for anyone uh, to watch. So, yeah, I would I would say that in the present age we're no longer beholden uh, to those festivals and feasts. It doesn't mean we shouldn't study them. All Scripture is profitable. We ought to study the whole counsel of God, and we can learn, obviously, a ton from the Old Testament as it prefigures the coming of Christ, and we see part of God's big picture and also all about His chosen nation of Israel. Uh, by the way, after the rapture, and when the kingdom starts, after the tribulation, when Christ comes back, we will see a return to those uh, Jewish feasts and festivals. Um, they will... Uh, be reinstituted from a different perspective. Whereas in the Old Testament times, before Christ came to the earth, they looked forward to Christ, the ultimate Lamb of God. In the kingdom, they will look at Christ and it will even be more meaningful to, to have those festivals and feasts as nations from all across the globe will come up to Jerusalem for those feasts and festivals because they'll have more meaning. Now we've seen the real deal. They're not just illusions Uh, But there, you know, we can put a a name with a face, so to speak, and it'll be a way to honor the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I know we covered a lot of ground tonight. Hopefully you found that uh, helpful and beneficial. Wanted to mention in closing that we get a lot of requests for recommendations like we did in some of the questions I talked about tonight for Bible studies. And so we have posted at our website under the resources tab uh, same place that you can find the NBW uh, Preparedness Guide. We've also just posted a link to our recommended Bible study resources. And so if you uh, click that, it'll download a PDF for you, and it gives you a bunch of dispensational authors that we, we recommend, study Bibles, Bible dictionaries, commentaries, things like that. So again, notbyworks.org. Look under the resources menu on the left side of the homepage, and you'll see recommended Bible study resources. While you're there, be sure and sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. We send out regular uh, emails so once or twice a week with new content, all of the new podcasts and videos that we've done. It's also got special announcements, upcoming conferences, that kind of thing. So sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Check out our online store. Uh, we've got tons of great resources there as well. And keep the questions coming. You know, we'll do another one of these coming up soon as my inbox starts to fill up and uh, we have enough uh, material uh, to do another one of these dr hickson answers your questions podcasts so thanks for listening today uh tomorrow night is prophecy night you can join us in person at plum creek chapel at six o'clock in the denver metro area or it is live stream so go to notbyworks.org, click on the live stream uh, button and that's uh tomorrow night wednesday is our weekly world events update with randy always a highlight of the week uh for me uh, and uh, Thursday, I'm so excited this week to have Nathan Jones from Lamb and Lion Ministries joining us uh, to talk about uh, his book, The Mighty Angels of the Book of Revelation. And you know I've written extensively about uh, the angelic and demonic world, and I love to talk about that subject, and he is an expert and really looking forward to uh, to having him on Thursday. And then, as I already mentioned, on Friday, we're pleased to have Dr. Thomas Ice from the Pre-Trib Research Center to talking about that tired old lie that that amillennialists and covenant theologians continue to spread to this day that somehow dispensationalism was made up by Darby in uh, the 19th century. So have a great uh, rest of the night, rest of the day, I should say. And uh, we will look forward to uh, talking with you again uh, tomorrow. God bless everyone.